stood in the middle of the debris, wearing only the bottom half of his thermal underwear, his bare feet bleeding into the floor, and a yellow streak running down his right leg. Dave went straight through him. If this guy couldn't get himself to his lifeboat, we weren't going to stop and give him directions. We took the stairs three at a time. Lifeboat number one was on the starboard side, right under the helideck. But it may as well have been in Cleveland. Something inside the room we needed to cross had slid across the floor and blocked our escape. The door was stuck. Out of stairwell, go, go! I turned around and ran back the way we had come, precious minutes wasted. There was real fear in Dave's voice. It made me move faster. We went back through the galley. The kitchen hand had disappeared. At the far end of the corridor was a hatch to the outer stairwell. I hit it so hard I felt my shoulder crack as it flew open. We descended the stairs without really touching them. The freezing air bit into the sweat on my face, and everything lay at a bizarre angle as the rig slowly continued to tip. Dave lost his footing at the bottom of the stairs and went down hard onto the container that lay across the walkway. We were fifty yards from our secondary lifeboat. I pulled him up and turned to run. The crew were mustering and preparing to launch what looked more like an orange submarine than a boat. Someone was there in the flashing light. It was Irwin, standing on the ramp in front of the open hatch. Come on! Run as fast as you fucking can! He was pulling us forward with his mind and giant hand gestures. Dave passed me like an orange Carl Lewis and boarded in the standard, I'm not going to die out here fashion, diving into the open hatch head first. Having just ran a quarter mile of corridors in record time, wearing a survival suit, I was happy he went through the hatch first as he cushioned my fall. My shoulder, his badly sprained ankle, and our respective head injuries didn't stop the wonderful sense of elation that swept over us as Irwin slammed the hatch door and locked it down. Andy, the skipper, was, as he liked to put it, well hard, and took every opportunity to give me his opinion on my new work boots. My feet were sticking straight up in front of him as I landed upside down between two seats. They're so gay, he said, and grinned, pointing at my boots on his way to the pilot's seat. His left hand started the deluge pump, then opened the air system, pressurizing the vessel, while his right primed and started the motor in well-rehearsed synchronicity. We all sat there strapped into four-point harnesses, collectively focused on Andy's left hand hovering over the launch handle. Dave pulled out the carton of camels and passed it around. One by one, each man nervously did that self-pat-down thing you do when you need a light. Dave looked around at forty guys, each with a cigarette hanging from their bottom lip, looking blankly back. Not one of you dickheads brought a lighter, did you? Andy had an emergency radio pressed to his ear, waiting for the word. Stand by, was all we heard. Another ten minutes, a lifetime. Okay, guys, it's a ballast control fuck-up. We have to wait, he said. I strapped myself into a seat. An hour went slowly by. My bum was going numb. Finally, Andy put down the radio. It's under control. They lost a valve and the portside pontoon started filling up with seawater. And then the emergency pump failed to start, he explained. So now they have to re-ballast down on the starboard side to level out the rig while they try to fix the valve and pump. We have to wait in case they can't do it, and we sink. I'm glad I'm not the poor bastard trying to fix that pump, said Dave. Another hour and the situation was under control. It took just 15 minutes to get 120 men into the right gear and in a lifeboat. Not bad. The door that Dave and I couldn't open was blocked by a desk that slid across the room at just the right angle to stop us from getting it open. My shoulder was okay, but it was going to hurt for a couple of weeks. Dave got a nail gun from the warehouse, and the desk is now permanently fastened to the floor. My first encounter with the oil world was early on in my life. 
I was around ten when my mother started working at Tri-State Oil Tools. It was during the boom years, in the early 80s, when increasingly more offshore activity was turning Aberdeen, where we lived at the time, into the new centre of the oil industry in Europe. It had the largest heliport in Britain, ferrying men from all over the world offshore. The workshop next to my mother's office pulled at me like a giant magnet. There was a perpetual stream of oil men passing through, and every last one of them had a story or dirty joke to tell. I started skipping school to hang around and listen to them on crew change, swapping stories and talking shop. They gave me the odd glass of beer, shoved American money in my pockets, gave me knives, ball caps and dirty magazines. I loved them. It didn't take long, really. As soon as I was old enough, I started roughnecking on a land rig and that was it. The oil field is a strange beast. It can quite unexpectedly creep under your skin and become as compulsive as your favourite legal addictive stimulant. I was hooked.